Um, so we are going to continue our uh, our study in the book of Ephesians. If you're visiting today, we've been kind of plodding through Ephesians, um, kind of verse by verse. Um, I was out of town last week. I was in Michigan, and uh, the Ledleys uh, shared. In fact, in the bookstore, you'll notice the name of the CD is called A Ledley Medley. You can pick that up. Uh, uh, but... Anyway, uh, I started uh, two weeks ago talking from verse uh, 4 about... I'm going to move this guitar. I'm going to knock it over. Uh, About Ephesians 2, verse 4. And I'm just going to start reading from Ephesians 2.1 and bring us back up into into 2.4 just to kind of refresh our memories here. Ephesians 2.1. And you who were dead in trespasses and sins, uh, and I mentioned some, some uh, translations add you he made alive, but that should be in italics because it's not in the, in the Greek there. And you who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us. And it's that phrase, His great love, that we started to um, look at last time I shared, and I want to look at uh, again. Verse 4 there kind of ends in the middle of a sentence. And the the uh, goes on in the following verses to describe something more of the nature and experience of his uh, great love. But we'll get on to those verses soon. But I want to just uh, try to remind you of uh, how we ended last time. I closed by saying that our comprehension of of his great loves uh, of his great love corresponds to our spirit-given view of our great need. I'm going to say that again. Our understanding of His great love corresponds directly to our our view, our understanding, our spiritual comprehension of our, our great need. In other words, your understanding of His love is directly proportional to your understanding of, of your need. If you understand yourself to be a person who struggles with sin then the love of God for you in Christ might have something to do with forgiveness uh, from uh, some sins. But if you understand yourself to be what he describes in, in verses 1 through 3 here, then love will take on an entirely different reality for you. If you know yourself to be dead in trespass and sin, and we spent some time on that, what that means. If you know yourself to be living in a dead realm under the power of the enemy, giving, in fact, giving that enemy's kingdom expression, conducting yourself according to the lusts of the flesh, and in all things seeking to fulfill the lusts of the flesh and of the carnal mind, and that you are in fact by nature a child of wrath, as it says, then the love of God has got to be God's grand solution to all of that. It can't just be the forgiveness of some hang-ups It has to be both the destruction and removal of all of that and the replacement of it with something that is life rather than death, that is righteousness rather 
than sin, that is the power of an indestructible life rather than the prince of the power of the air, the fruit of the Spirit rather than the lust of the flesh and the mind, partaking of the divine nature, 2 Peter 1.3, rather than by nature children of wrath. The love of God has got to encapsulate all of that to fix the problem. So that's what I mean when I say that your comprehension of His great love begins with a greater comprehension of, of, uh, of your natural condition. You cannot see the solution until you, until you come to share His view of the problem. You can't see the reconciliation until you've, you've started with His view of the enmity. You're never going to understand the nature of His love until you see the nature that first had to be put away. And that's a fact. So the love of God is the great solution, capital S, because it's a person, to the condition <clears throat> that Paul describes in these, in these first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2. A solution is a person. That person is given to you as Jesus Christ. I didn't say uh, that Jesus gives you a solution. I said that Jesus is the solution that's given to you. There's such a huge difference in that. In other words, you could say it like this. Jesus is the life. He is the righteousness. He is the spirit. He is the new mind. He is the new nature, etc., etc., that you required. He himself is our peace with God, as it goes on to say in, uh, later in Ephesians chapter 2. More than that, he, he is the death that ends what you could never end. And then he is the life that grants what you could never find. And so you can say, and you must say, and you must not just say, you must come to know that Christ Himself is the love of God given to you. Christ is the love of God. And if there's one sentence that I would pray that the Spirit of God would make real to you this morning and last time, it's this. That Christ is God's love for you. He doesn't give you some love because of Christ. Christ is the love of God. It's not just that He felt a certain way for you that He calls love and so He gave Christ. No, the giving of Christ is God's love for you. It might be helpful if, uh, if I take a little bit of a step back this morning and just look at the word love. And this is nothing... Uh, a lot of this this morning is nothing, nothing new... Uh, it's just that we must come to a greater view of it. It's newer to my heart than it ever has been. I can say that. It's something that I've, I've, uh, I've come to see with more clarity. Uh, and as always, you know, this spiritual word love has its understanding bound up with the person who is the sum of all things spiritual. You know, Christ is the Father's understanding of all spiritual things. That's why he is called the wisdom of God, the word of God, the truth. Christ is the Father's understanding. What's the Father's understanding of righteousness? Christ. What's the Father's understanding of, of truth? Christ. What's the Father's understanding of redemption? Christ. What's the Father's understanding? Everything. Everything's spiritual. And so in order for us to understand anything spiritual, we must understand it in the person of Jesus Christ. Or as 2 Corinthians 4 says, we must understand it, understand it in the light of the face of Jesus Christ. Because it is defined by a person. It is understood in that person and by that person being revealed. 
And so love is no different than anything else. You'll never know truth as a, as a thing. Truth will be the unveiling of Christ. You'll never know righteousness as a thing. Righteousness comes to be that person working in your soul, etc. So, uh, I want to look at love a little bit. And, uh, and, and kind of by way of contrast, I want to look first at love as it's understood uh, by the natural mind. I think love to the natural mind is primarily an emotion that, that uh, is of, of your soul having to do with a fondness or a desire or a longing or, a, or attachment or an affection for something. We love things that we think are good or are gained to us in one way or another. Even though that might take some of the mystique out of love or the magic out of, out of love, that's really, it's pretty, pretty hard to argue with that uh, as, as really being the, the simplicity of, of the love that works in the heart of the Adamic man. The reason we love things, according to you know, almost, uh, I guess, the most familiar understanding of, of love is because of what we gain by them or the pleasure that we take in them. And then love then becomes an action uh, a verb whenever we act on those emotions. And I don't, I don't suppose I have to prove that uh, to this audience. Uh, you know, you just have to think. Think of something in the natural realm. You know, something, something other than your kids, I guess. It seems to me that perhaps in the case of children, natural love can, can be elevated to something slightly uh, more than just the desire for selfish gain, although not, not always. Uh, but it does appear to me sometimes that there is something in a parent's love for a child that is a better picture, a better type and shadow in this realm of the love that God has. But just think of something else, like ice cream or football or you know, sunshine or chicken noodle soup or a house or a car or a friend, walks on the beach, you know, whatever you're into. Why do you love them? We feel certain ways about those things because of what they offer us. It's that simple. And then, and then action flows out of uh, emotion. Action then comes out of the emotions that we feel. We prove we love ice cream by how much of it we eat. We prove we love walks on the beach by how much time we spend doing it or how many pictures we take of it. We prove we love a friend by how much we call them on the phone. We prove whatever. You know, it's just that's just how it works. And I'm not trying to say that all of that is worthless. It, it has its place in the realm in which it belongs but I will say that it's not really what the term love has to do with, biblically speaking. And it's not really the nature or reality of God's love for you and I. And <clears throat> I said this last time, but I'm going to say it again. Because this is how we love, we then project our understanding of love onto God rather than let Him show us the reality of love. We read a verse, God is love. We assume we know what love is, therefore we, know, we assume we know how God loves. But we need to start over with God showing us the reality of His love. Otherwise, we will always create God according to our own imaginations, according to our own image. So we, we, we think that God's love for us is like our love, just a fondness, an attraction, a longing uh, for the purpose of self-gain. And that's, that's why that understanding of love, the love of God, often leads to condemnation on the one hand and, and complacency and, and pride on the other hand. Condemnation for those who, who are uh, quite certain they do not deserve the fondness, attraction, and affection of God. 
and then complacency and pride uh, to those who are quite convinced that they do. So I want to challenge, I just, not, not to be uh, argumentative, I just want to do it just to, to shake up the uh, ground a little bit and, and let, let uh, maybe some of the, the fallow ground of our heart be broken up a little bit so that something of uh, truth can settle in. Uh, I want to challenge our view of love, again, the love of God this morning. And like I said, I taught, I did a four-part series a year, a year and a half ago, I can't remember, on love. And, 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 and what I'm going to say this morning is not that different than that. It's not really different than that. It's just, I, I feel like in my own heart, it's become even more clear. It's become even more real. Uh, so, uh, it may not be new words, but, but, but the reality of the love of God is sharpened in its focus. And I'm just going to try to describe what, what I've come to see about the love of God. And like... Uh, like I always say, and I always will say, we always have to be willing to let go of some of our thoughts about spiritual things before there's room in our heart for God to show us His. So biblically speaking, love is not just a fondness and attachment to people or things unto personal gain. It's, it's, not, and it's not just the nice things that are done for, for, for those purposes or the nice things that are said because of a fondness that we feel. That's not really the nature of God's love for us. And let me, let me just say this as plain as I can. Feeling, doing, or saying nice things, whatever you think is nice, because of an emotional desire for something is not God's understanding of His love. That's how the natural mind defines love. And that's why the natural mind is so offended when we read Bible verses, you know, things in the Bible where God is doing things that seem to contradict our notion of love. We, we define love according to our own hearts and then we read Bible verses that, and we have to write books and commentaries that explain these, quote, difficult passages of Scripture and how, how they still line up with what we think we know love to be. And that's, that's just uh, how the natural mind works. Now, before I go any further, lest you think I'm about to tell you God doesn't love you, let me reassure you that I am certain of the reality that God's love is infinitely better and more real than the, uh, than the imagination. It's greater and not, not lesser than the natural mind's concept. So you can let your guard down here. I'm not leading you, you know, till a place where I'm going to close by saying, and therefore God hates you. Amen. No, I'm, not gonna, I'm not going that way. I'm just trying to let you loosen your grip a little bit. Uh, I'm hopefully leading to a place where we can trade in a lesser view of love for a far greater love. That's where I'm trying to head with this. So, anyway, I was talking about how we read scriptures and we get offended by them or confused by them or, or, or whatever. And how, how many people have you heard in your life that, that have read the Bible or looked at the world, looked at circumstances, tragedies of the world and used their natural mind to form a conclusion about the love of God? doesn't take very long, you know, reading in the Bible before you see God doing things and speaking in ways that in some way or another go against our concept of what love is. And it's not very long before Adam's kicked out of the garden and cursed for just sinning one time, you know. Cain's, Cain's rejected, Ham rejected, Ishmael rejected, Esau rejected. 
And then you see nations, nations cut off, cast out, and killed. You see entire, the entire world destroyed in a flood, except for one man and his boat. You see Abraham's seed conquering nations, burning cities, killing all that have breath. And it's not long before the love equals niceness equation doesn't quite fit. And you start having things happen in your heart. I thought this God was a God of love. Or, or that's when you start you know, trying to defend God. You know, well, I'm sure they deserved it. You know, or, or whatever. You don't, you don't know what to say. I'm not trying to say that they didn't deserve it. I'm just trying to say that our mind is not the definition of love. And then you flip to the New Testament and you're equally offended. Uh, you know, despite the uh, bumper stickers that say, who would Jesus bomb? Or things like that. You find Jesus calling Pharisees hypocrites, broods of vipers, whitewashed teams, uh, tombs. You see him turning over the, the, uh, the tables and whipping cattle and telling a Gentile woman that it's not right to take a children's bread and throw it to dogs. At one point he says, don't throw your pearls to swine. They will only trample them underfoot and then turn on you. Another place he says of the Pharisees, leave them alone. They're blind guides leading the blind. Both will fall into a pit. I heard one time, <laughs> I heard a pastor say, that's not even Christian. You know, that's that's what that's what happens when when the natural mind uh, becomes the defining of love or any spiritual thing for that matter. And that's why I said a few weeks back when we were talking about uh, somehow we got onto love. It was back earlier in uh, Ephesians chapter one. I was talking about love, and I said that love cannot be defined by works. Works can be the outworking of love. In other words, you can't look at a work and say there is some love. You must first know the reality of love and then you might see and comprehend some works of love. I don't, I don't mean to be confusing there. I'm just saying that we've, we have to first know what love is, who love is, and how it works. And then we can understand the things that flow out from love. Love cannot be defined or understood by what we think is nice. You can't look at a work and say, wow, that was really love. How could you possibly know that? How could you possibly know that? Do you you realize how many so-called loving things are done by dead religions and spiritually dead people all day long who busy themselves doing things in the name of love? Could that be love? Is love a thing? Or is love a person who works in the soul of man? Do you know how many so-called loving things are done by Christians? Far more out of insecurity or or a need for self-affirmation or a sense of of, uh, uh, spiritual maturity than than out of the love of God working in their soul. You can't judge love by works. You can only judge works by love. Maybe, that, maybe I lost some of you with that, but uh, it might make sense some other time. What is love? Love in its essence is not the taking of things around us to ourselves because of a fondness or an attraction or an affection or, or because of beauty. Love is really... Incidentally, that is the definition of, of love as it was taught in my uh, philosophy classes in, um, in college. 
Love is your need to take beauty unto yourself. But that is not, um, that is not, biblically speaking, what love is. Love is actually the giving or sharing or outpouring of life. And, and specifically, biblically speaking, the nature and reality of God's love is the giving, sharing, or outpouring of His very life in the person of Jesus Christ. It is the sharing of His life with those who would receive it, live by it, and thus cease to live by their own. Love on God's part is offering us the great exchange of His life for our living death. That's love. Love on our part to God is accepting the offer, losing our life and finding His. And as I said last time, I don't simply mean that God's emotions compelled Him to share His life. I mean that the sharing of His life in Christ is precisely what the love of God is. In other words, it's not as much that God felt certain feelings for you, therefore He gave you something. It's that the love of God given to you is Christ Jesus. A whole new life. I don't mean a turning over a new leaf. I mean life you've never had before. I'm talking about righteousness that you could never have. It's Him in you. I'm talking about wisdom that you could never conjure up. It's His mind working in you. I'm talking about a relationship that you could never enter into because it's the Son's relationship with His own Father. I'm talking about the love of God being given to you in and as the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what we looked at last time when we looked at John 3.16, which reads quite literally, For God in this manner loved the world that He gave His only Son. Not God this much loved the world, but God in this manner. The word so there is the, is the Greek word that means thusly, in this manner. Not quantitative, not here's how much, but here's the way. Here's the way He loved the world, that He gave a Son in whom we could live. In fact, that's how it says it in 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was revealed in us because God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. There's the love of God. Or 1 John 3.16. In this we have known the love of God because He laid down His life for us. And that's not instead of us, that's in behalf of us. But I won't get into that. And here, here's where we need, I think, in my opinion, to take a step back and let the Lord show us a greater view of His love. We need to, we need to step back from how we've defined love and therefore, unknowingly, we've defined God. Love is far more than just an emotion with God. Not just, it's not just an emotion that motivates Him. Try to set that aside for a bit. I'm not throwing that away. Just try to set... Because that's how we have it compartmentalized in our, in our understanding. Love is really what God is and what God does out from what God is. That's why the Scripture says God is love. God is by nature one that seeks to lavish Himself pour out Himself, share Himself, give Himself to those who will receive Him. And yet, you cannot receive that love without first walking through the door that has blood on it. This love, which is the granting of His life, requires the loss of your own. It cannot be otherwise. Jesus says it over and over and over again. You could say it this way. God's love for us 
is an invitation into a full participation of his life through his death. Through his death. It is the granting us the newness of life through baptism into his death. I'm just going through some scriptures here, paraphrasing them. It is the offering of himself as our resurrection when we come by way of his crucifixion. That's the door. The door isn't just the sinner's prayer, guys. The door is death. Lose your life to find it. Hate your life and you'll keep it. God's love is the outpouring, the giving, the sharing of His Son with us, but the price on that gift is the loss of everything that stands opposed to it. And that is what Paul is describing in the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2. The natural man. The Adamic man. Love from God's perspective is the full, unhindered giving of Himself, the giving of His life and nature and glory in and through the cross. And therefore, here's the kicker, here's the part we don't like, therefore the necessary rejection and destruction of everything else. That's where we get confused. See, it's both an offer and a rejection. It's a destruction and a new creation. It's a death and a resurrection. It's a judgment and a complete liberation. It's both. I one time said it like this. How did God love you? He killed you and gave you the life of His Son. He loved you by offering you a death you couldn't die. He loved you by crucifying you with His Son and causing that Son to be your life. And the natural mind says, wait a minute. I thought you said He loved me. He wouldn't reject me. He wouldn't kill me if He loved me. No, no, you've got it wrong. That's so wrong. He couldn't love you without crucifying you with His Son. He couldn't lavish... See, He might feel something for you, but He couldn't lavish His life. He couldn't fill you with His Son. He couldn't give you new life until He first put away that which stood opposed to Him. He couldn't truly love you without crucifying you with Christ. Right there is the love of God made manifest. He takes away what you were so that He can bring you into the experience of all that He is. I know that's hard to hear and I know it sounds maybe funny. You know, it shrinks churches. But it's better than the alternative. I promise you that. The reason we reject it is because at a heart level we disagree with Paul's assessment of the natural man in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. That's what I've been trying to get at for a couple weeks now. We don't see our need like Paul saw it. We don't see ourselves as dead, enemies, vessels of the enemy, children of wrath by nature. That's why I keep saying that our view of His love corresponds to the view of our need. We, we read right over those first three verses as though they're talking about somebody else, but it's talking about you and I, and not just what you and I did, what you and I are what you and I are by nature. Not a struggle with naughtiness, but something that God could not even look upon. We like to think of God being quite fond of us as we are by nature. We like to think of Him forgiving the bad parts, keeping the good and making it better. We say things like that all the time. You know, God loves you just the way you are. or God meets you where you are. Well, it's true. He does meet you where, he are, where you are, but He meets you there so He can kill you. 
So he can crucify you. And I kind of say that tongue-in-cheek, but it's really true. He meets you there so that he can take you where he is. But the ladder out from one realm and into the other is death, burial, and resurrection. There's no other way. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. You've been baptized into his death. You have died. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. You've been circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Well, He meets you where you are with His cross because in order to love you, He must remove from you, from your soul, He must circumcise from your soul all that is horrible and dead and deceived and harmful and in the way of good. And see, this is is the manifestation of God's love. And that's where we get so confused. He could never leave you as you are. His love is far greater than that. Love conforms you to His image by conforming you to His death and filling you with His life. And so we, mis- we misunderstand Him. We misunderstand Him. We try to make Him like us. We say things like, God hates sin... And, and, uh, but he loves the sinner. And, and though there's some truth in that statement, what we usually fail to see when we say that is that the cross puts away, Colossians 3.9, the old man together with his deeds. Or Ephesians 4.22 puts away the old man together with his lust. In other words, the cross removes both the sins and the sinner and makes us into a new creation where it is now Christ all and in all. And that's how we're loved of God. You could say it like this. You could say the measure of God's love is the measure of Christ. He is the width and the breadth and the height and the depth of God's love. Christ is the one in whom we are accepted of God. Accepted in the Beloved. We looked at that in Ephesians 1.6. Not accepted because of... not, Not just accepted because of the Beloved. Accepted in the Beloved. Translated into the Son of His love, Colossians 1.13. And it's only in the blindness of the Adamic mind that we demand God love us in any other way. If we knew what was best for us, we would want to be loved in this way. Loved in His Son. Not left as we are. And yet we... We demand God love us just the way we are. And friends, I just want to say he did something so much better than that. He didn't, he, didn't just, he didn't just learn to tolerate or to stomach what you are by nature. He gave you the very life, glory, person, and relationship of his Son. There is no greater love than that. That is the manifestation of God's love. I know I'm repeating myself, but... It takes time for the Spirit of God to make words into reality in the soul. So love isn't isn't just this feeling that He has. It is a person that He gives. The great love of God is Christ. His great love is Christ given to the human soul. The only question, as always, is whether we have come to see as He sees. The fact of the matter is that we, by, by new birth, we've already made this great exchange, death for life. That happens the moment you're born again. We've already received the love of God as the person of Jesus Christ. He is our life. 
We, I just quoted some of these scriptures. We, we have died. Our life is hidden with Christ and God. And yet, in the darkness of the unrenewed mind, we demand He loves something that in reality no longer even exists. Not in His sight. We're not even the person that we're demanding Him to love. That person has been crucified with Christ. We are, in fact, a new creation. If any man is in Christ, behold, a new creation. One new man where Christ is all in all. Let me try to say it another way here. The love of God for you is an incredible, unimaginable offer to lose your life at the cross and find Christ as your life. It's God's grace. The gracious gift of a death that you could never find. Gift of death, burial, and resurrection. All of which are Christ. Christ is that death that you are baptized into, the burial, buried with Him, and the life where He is the resurrection of the soul. And so you begin in that to understand something of the nature of His love. And this love, this love of God, it involves both a rejection and an acceptance. It involves a division. That is so hard for us to swallow. We want to stay as we are and add more onto it. We want, you know, that's why we reject the cross. That's why it's so hard to, 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 to find. It's so easy to preach something that tickles the ears, that lets you live, tells you all the things that you can do for God. How much God wants to use you the way you are. It's so much easier to hear that. It's such an offense to preach the cross. Someone told me re- recently that, uh, that, that that's been preaching the cross. That what you're saying invalidates some of my former spiritual thoughts or former spirituality. My God, the, the cross invalidates your whole life. I mean, wh- what, do you, what do you think? The cross is where you come and die. Of course it invalidates your imaginations. But you're not losing anything. You never lose anything by coming to the cross. You only lose the lie. You only lose what He's already put away. You lose your imaginations. You lose the mirage. If you want to hold on to, and I'm speaking out of some experiences here, but if you want to hold on to the mirage, if you want to hold on to the illusion, you're the one cheating yourself. I don't... I, so what? It invalidates your previous spiritual notions. You're trading in the truth for a lie. It's a suicidal exchange. You don't really want to do that. If you knew what was best for you, you would let God's view of that death become your view and find His Son as the only fragrance you can offer up to God. You know what? When I started seeing the cross... The cross invalidated everything that I had ever thought about God and thought about myself. And it always will. Because it only leaves one man standing. It only leaves one man standing as the resurrection and the life. And that is the only one 
You don't bring things into Him or add things onto Him. You are filled with Him and manifest His fullness, but you never add to that fullness. That fullness fills you. You grow up into Him who is the fullness, but it's Christ all and in all. And everything we try to bring into that and everything we try to validate next to that, every flesh suitcase we pack up and bring into the promised land is something that He's going to be trying to cut off from the day you're born again until the day you die. And you can reject that every step of the way you want to in the name of validating your prior spirituality. But I'm saying that you are making war with the cross. You are at war with the living God. And He's got a knife drawn. And it's to cut off from your heart what He has already cut off from His sight. And I know that that's offensive. The cross is an offense to the flesh, an offense to the mind of the Greek and to the Jew that seeks for a sign and wonder. We preach Christ. He is the sign and wonder and He is the mind of God. Anyway, that's a little rabbit trail there, but it comes out of uh, some conversations I had this past week. The place where we get offended is the fact that the love of God involves a rejection and an acceptance. It involves a division. It involves a condemnation. It is not a condemnation that comes from your heart. It is a condemnation that is shown to your heart by the Spirit of God. It involves calling one thing dead and calling another thing alive because God calls one thing dead and another thing alive. It involves the putting away of the first and the establishing of the second. The love of God involves the death of the old and the replacement with the new. And then you can look again. And you can look again at those strange, offensive, but familiar Bible stories and see them again for the first time, so to speak. You look at them again. You realize God has always been showing the same love. A love that has to destroy in order to make new. A love that has to judge in order to accept. A love that divides in order to make one. It's a love whereby God has rejected what is dead and brought us into Him who is alive. And you, and you see that that love is what's being demonstrated in those stories and testified to in thousands of types and shadows in the story of Cain and Ishmael and, and Esau. Not the individuals. God's not respecter of, a respecter of persons. But you see the love of God being demonstrated whereby He rejects one seed and invites us to live by another. He rejects one kingdom and desires to translate us into another. A love that removes from a land everything that is contrary to one seed in order that His seed might be all in all. You see, a love that rejects Saul as king because he refused to agree with God as to what was condemned and what was accepted. Saul tried to keep the best of the first in place of the second. And not just Saul. Abraham. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. I've found that to be the cry of my heart. My natural Adamic heart. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you, God. Or Laban. Oh, that you might take Leah instead of Rachel. Or Esau. But I am the first and Jacob is the second. Or Joseph. Father, you crossed your hands and you're giving the secondborn the inheritance. And you look at Jesus' harsh words. Righteous indignation that was spoken against those who called darkness light and called evil good. And you see that the most loving thing that he could do was to pronounce condemnation. Not because he was condemning them in his heart or in his word, but because they stood condemned by God. 
already. Even as he says in John chapter 3, verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. Why? It was condemned already. But that the world might through Him be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. When you begin to see the nature of this love, then you can begin to judge works according to love and not try to judge love according to works. In other words, understanding something of that love, you can see how all that God does, all that God has ever done, all that He has to remove, all that He has to destroy is only in order that He can lavish upon you what the true love of God is. Christ. Christ, your righteousness. Christ, your life. Christ, your wisdom. Christ, your redemption. Christ, your sanctification. Christ, your covenant. Christ, your relationship with the Father. Christ, your place to dwell. Everything He's ever said and done. Everything that He's ever destroyed and cut off has always and forever been a manifestation of the, a manifestation of the nature of this love. This love that, 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 both, that both cuts off and, and establishes. That both removes and fills. Rejects and accepts. A love that rejects what is not Christ only so that He can lavish Christ Himself upon all that would call on Him. That is love. The love of God is the person of Christ. The life of Christ being given to you. And that person is not a supplement to the natural man. That person is the loving destruction an end to all that Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. The end of death through life. The end of trespass and sin through righteousness. The end of enmity with God because He Himself is our peace. The end of being vessels of evil because we now have a treasure in this earthen vessel. The end of children of wrath by nature because we come to partake of the divine nature living in us. Not becoming God, but becoming the vessels of His life as a branch to a vine. The great love of God, I guess maybe this is the best way I can put it, is a chance to lose your life and find His. The great love of God is and has always been in all the types and shadows a bloody door a bloody altar where you leave flesh behind. Jesus became that bloody door and offered us that death so that we could have Him as life. The great love of God is a bloody door where you walk in but He walks out. We go on in the next verses uh, to look more specifically that that love is in fact where you were because you were baptized into His death you can now be made alive with Him raised with Him seated with Him in Christ in the heavens dead to sin alive to God forever in Christ Jesus our Lord Amen we'll stop with that why don't we stand and we'll just
pray.